Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When those those legends get here, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. No, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The that's we didn't the problem. realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, here with yet another of the conversation episodes that I have scheduled for this month, and which are going to continue on because, yes, I scheduled too many of them, and yes, I still have so many more cool people that I can talk to about super cool topics. I just recently recorded another of the conversations, and honestly, I just cannot wait for you all to hear all of them. It is such a fun series and I'm super pumped to get to do it. But today, yes, I am back with what I promised originally, the wonderful fan favorite Anwen Kaya Hayward, author of Hear the World Entire and lover of Medusa, re-recorded our Medea episode so that you all get to hear it. It's bigger and better than the one we fucked up. 
So I hope you enjoy. Also, if you are at all interested in the 1960s Jason and the Argonauts movie that Anwen brings up and that I admit I have not yet seen, tune in to my Twitter on the weekend because we're still working out the time frame, but Anwen and I are going to watch that movie and live tweet it. I'm really excited. I know that there are stop motion skeletons and that is about it. So I am ready. And with that, I give you... Conversations. Jason has the personality of a used dishcloth. Medea with Anwen Kaya Hayward. We are here again today to talk (laughs) to Anwen Kaya Hayward about Medea. As my listeners know, this is a redo, but it's going to be better than the one we lost. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So thank you so much for talking to me again about Medea. I mean, it's a good way to spend a Sunday evening. It's fine by me. I think so. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, fortunately, she is fascinating. I think I could talk about her for hours. And so it's it's never hard to have yet another conversation about the witch who had the unfortunate luck of dealing with Jason. Ugh. I feel so sorry for her. <laughs> just any association with that man. God. He's just awful, isn't he? Ugh. He's just the worst. He's terrible. Like, I am a walking Jason hate club. I just love him. <laughs> Jason and Theseus, I could talk about it forever, just how much they ruined everything. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, it's really hard to tell who is worse, I think. You know, I think they really, like, where one is not quite as bad, the other is awful, and then, Mm. you know, vice versa. I think they're both bad in, like, in very different ways. Like, I always kind of think of Jason as being kind of like the archetypal fuckboy. Yes. Like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, he he basically, he has this woman uh, who he really relies on for, like, you know, all the emotional labour and, like, the, the physical labour of, like, doing his job for him. And then as soon as she becomes inconvenient, he's, like, he just, like, leaves her messages on red. And he's, like, <laughs> I'm done with you. I've got this hot new lady wife, so. He ghosts. He does. Oh my god, he's the yeah. original ghoster. He actually is. Well, and actually, he ghosts Hypsipoli like long before he ghosts Medea. He's terrible. He's the worst. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's one thing too that's not talked about enough. And obviously this episode is about Medea, so we will focus on her. But poor Hypsipoli got fucked over by Jason before Medea ever did. And I mean, I think Hypsipoli probably bounced back pretty well because she was on an island of only women and was kind of okay with that. Hmm. But, you know, at the same time, he's such a shit. He has precedent. Yeah, exactly. It's not his first. No, like his douchebaggery doesn't come out of nowhere. It's clearly like an established character trait. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's not many heroes that I think are, are outwardly good. But I just think he has no redeeming qualities. No, he really doesn't. And like, I know that the focus of this isn't Jason, but I also feel like it's really important to say that like Jason doesn't have anything good about him. Like, no, exactly. And I think that we kind of um, sort of talked about it before, but the fact that in terms of the Jason Medea narrative, actually, he is such a passive figure 
in like the entire story he just kind of is along for the ride while everybody else around him does all the hard work and then he just gets the credit at the end absolutely i mean he his ship it is manned by the most famous of all of the heroes <laughs> him being one of the least famous i mean also it notoriously has atalanta which is very cool you know there's a heroine on board and who is it? It's it's Theseus, it's Heracles, it's Peleus, Orpheus. Is there anyone I'm forgetting that's major? I think those are the major ones. And then and then suddenly, you know, it, it's still somehow about Jason. Yeah. And then get finally, you know, there's lots of adventure in between. It's not great. They get to Colchis, where Medea is. And then every single thing he has to do in order to get the Golden Fleece and keep Aetes happy, or rather anger him horribly, he could not do without Medea. He's just utterly useless all around. Yeah, he is. And I think that it's interesting how, in terms of like how we tend to talk about their whole kind of narrative arc, we tend to refer to it as like Jason and the Argonauts. Like this is how we speak of it. But actually, if you look at the arc of the characters within that narrative, the hero's arc kind of belongs to Medea in a lot of ways like I'm not saying that what she does is heroic because obviously like there's a lot of you know murder it's not ideal (laughs) (laughs) it's it's not great but in terms of who has the agency in that story it's it's really not Jason no definitely not he's he's just sort of a background character in his own story but it's presented as if he's very much the hero yeah, and I think a lot of the reception of their story, I mean, I, there's obviously quite a few examples, but the one that I always think of is like the Harryhausen film, Jason and the Argonauts. And like, he is this kind of incredibly like rugged, uh, intelligent, kind of like Odysseus style hero in that film. And oh. he, he's portrayed as being quite cunning. Uh, he comes up with all these great plans, but then when you kind of look at the source material, you're like, oh, that's not, that's not Jason. No, definitely not. It's all, it's all Medea. I mean, obviously things happen before they get to Colchis, but he doesn't do a lot of things that he, you know, alone, like it's always with the rest of the Argonauts. And so presumably, or certainly by all of the evidence we have, like, could he have done it alone? I don't know. Could he have gotten there alone? And you know, succeeded along the way, or would he probably have crashed and burned? I feel like he would have crashed and burned. I feel like if he could have done it alone, he would have. (laughs) Yeah, that's certainly what I think. I mean, he's a, he's something else, honestly. Yeah, and I'm not saying that he deserved what happened to him, but I am saying that (laughs) I hate him. (laughs) But also, I think it's such a, well, and, you know, again, we should talk primarily about Medea, but everyone loves to hate on Jason, so it's fine. But she doesn't, she makes kind of a point of not doing anything to him, right? Like, she doesn't physically hurt Jason. And, of course, you know, what she does to their children hurts Jason. Hmm. And what she does to, you know, his new wife hurts him. But almost, it's almost just in the same way that he was, like, passive in his heroic adventure story that he's sort of equally a side character, even in his fate. Like, hmm. he doesn't warrant actually being involved. <laughs> now, that's actually a really good point. Like, all of Medea's vengeance is kind of focused around him, but not on him. 
Yeah, as if that's, it's worse, almost. I think it is, yeah, because obviously then he has to, like, live to suffer what happens to him. He doesn't get the kind of easy out of, like, not being there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's all, like, she really thinks out her punishment on Jason. And obviously, we don't condone what she did, but it's very satisfying to have his life ruined in that way. Yeah, it kind of is. And then you feel like a dick for being like, "Mm, I'm glad he's miserable. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not glad the children are dead. No, that's the- that's the thing. It's like, when we talk about Medea, you have to kind of preface every sentence with like, just to clarify, murder's bad. Like, <laughs> don't murder. And she shouldn't have killed her children. Like, we need to get that out there, I think, pretty early on. What Medea does is very, very naughty. And we're not condoning that. We're just no. saying... <laughs> That you have to read it in the context of what she's experienced. Exactly. And I think, well, I, I, I told her story twice, once very early in the podcast before I had access to many sources and also before I kind of had the same level of ability to parse out the stories and mm. kind of see beyond the sources. And so, you know, in the first one, it's very much like, oh, Medea is kind of crazy. And I, you know, she's fascinating, but she's murderous. And then then the second version I've told, it's more like, I can see how she got there. You can see why. I mean, the notorious thing about Medea is not only is she a woman in ancient Greece, which means she has absolutely no power, but she is a foreigner. Hmm. She is not Greek. And so that gives her even less power. And so, you know, when it comes to Jason then up and deciding to leave her, one, he can because she's not Greek. So they're technically not married. So he can just fuck off. And two, she has absolutely nothing. She's not a Greek. She's in a foreign land. She has no way to take care of herself, let alone her children. And then so you can kind of get to where she got to, which is what is going to happen to her and her children if Jason gets away with what he's planning and is somehow her decision. Obviously it's not the right decision for her children, but you can see how she didn't want them to suffer. And so that was what she felt like was her only option. Yeah. And and I think that's a good point. Like um, I would say, particularly in the Euripides version, it is kind of semi portrayed as, like mercy killing is the wrong word, but mm-hmm. but you know what I mean. Like ultimately, she's kind of she's viewing her children's lives, and obviously bearing in mind that in order to help Jason, Medea had to essentially like destroy any chance she ever had of returning home because you know she she kills people. So she, <laughs> yeah, she she's fully exiled. She can never return. So once Jason uh, boots her aside for this hot, you know, young, actually Greek person she is completely cast adrift she can't go home but she's also not greek so she's essentially stateless like she doesn't have anywhere to go so in tandem her children have nowhere to go so what kind of life do they have exactly yeah yeah that's notable too she can't go home and so yeah what what can she do you know and she no she doesn't kill herself which is also interesting almost i mean you i think you could you could pose the idea that 
it's a punishment to herself as well. You know, she's punishing herself equally to Jason. She feels that guilt. She recognizes or she feels in the moment that all she can do is take the lives of her children in order to spare them what they would go through. But she doesn't take her own because she almost wants to live in that punishment. Hmm. Kind of like being a witness to what she's done in a way, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, sort of to... I think taking her own life might feel like the easy way out to her or feel like she wasn't that, you know, that then the severity of what she had done is sort of lessened because she doesn't have to live through it. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I think there's also like, I think we have to admit there's definitely an element of it where she's like, no, I want to see him suffer. Like, I want to be around to witness, like, the fallout of what I've done. And obviously the Euripides version of Medea is kind of, like, the the, the best-known version that we have. And that's the version that we assume uh, originated the whole infanticide element of the myth. Mm -hmm. But there's obviously also other versions, some of which take that as its basis, some of which don't. And I suppose the most similar version, and one that I I reread to prepare for this <laughs> is uh the Seneca version oh did you okay yes. I still haven't gotten to read it so now I'm very curious I'm glad you read it it's very similar to Euripides uh in that the kind of like bare bones of the narrative are the same but the way that what she the way what she does is treated is slightly different Mm. And I think that largely that's due to very boring reasons of Seneca's philosophy. Because mm. obviously, like. And I think a preface to my listeners Seneca is Roman. Yeah. So he's much later and not Greek. Much later. Like, I think 500 years approximately later. So yeah, that a, a long sense. time later. Um, and he was basically uh, essentially a stoic philosopher. So his whole thing was kind of like controlling the passions and not allowing passions to rule each other and finding the perfect balance between emotions. Okay. So, which obviously Medea does not do. <laughs> she very much uh, is like taken over by like the spirits of vengeance and rage. So the way he treats it is sometimes more sympathetic towards her in that he kind of makes it clear that what she's doing is not a well-reasoned act so in his view she's kind of been overtaken by like essentially pure emotion uh and the whole play is kind of like a treatise on what happens when you don't rein it in and think about what you should do Mm. so it's a bit more i mean it sounds like it's it's much more critical of Medea. Yeah, it, it's weird. It's like a double-edged sword in that I think it, it's more critical in that it makes it a lot clearer that what she does is terrible and awful and also completely rooted in the desire for vengeance. Like, there, there's no hint that she's doing it for her children. Right. But then, in a way, it's more sympathetic because it says, but look, if she just thought about it, she wouldn't have done it. She's not evil. Oh. She's just, like, overcome with like raw emotion oh that's really interesting so it's still still able he's still able to see her in a in a sympathetic light see how she could have been different yeah does it portray her emotions as being particularly feminine or are they sort of more broadly just emotions see i think that's the really interesting thing is that i actually don't think that it's intended to be read as like a purely feminine thing purely because the whole 
uh, sort of ethos of stoicism is very much like kind of the universality of emotion and achieving the kind of balance between like emotion and reason. But I think that a lot of later receptions of it turn it into like a feminine thing. Mm. I mean, obviously, you, you have the famous uh, quote of like, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. And I think Medea mm-hmm. is really often taken as like the perfect example of a woman scorned. Well, certainly before I had read the play and before I had, you know, a grasp on on why it would have been like that, like why her story is more complex. My understanding of Medea was based in having just heard her name used to describe exactly that, you know, an angry, vengeful woman and the damage she can cause because of that anger and vengeance, you know, whereas that's not really what it is. Like, you know, obviously it's awful. It's bad. It's, it's horrifying, but it's not like it came out of nowhere. (laughs) you know yeah she didn't one day wake up horribly furious and just looking to kill her children for absolutely no reason no and yeah no that that is a really good point that I think most people's kind of like gateway into the myth of Medea probably is the same as you where where they see somebody be like oh evil women from myth and there's like a list of like top five evil women Mm -hmm. and it's like Clytemnestra Medea like the same kind of people that you see on all these lists and um, there's never really any acknowledgement that, like, again, what she does is very, very bad. Not condoning very it. Very bad. But there's, <laughs> there's never, like, an acknowledgement that there's a thought process behind it and, and that she doesn't just do it because she wants revenge. Like, yes, that is a part of it. And even in Euripides, that's very much presented as a part of it. And, and we can't really um, divorce that from her entirely. But it, it's not a place of, like immorality or evil it's very much a considered uh complex nuanced motive that i think is really reductive to just characterize as well it's what women do when they're upset yeah absolutely i mean it's not about her being a woman you know everything that was done to her would be just as bad if it were done to a man except for the whole implications of being a woman in ancient greece but that doesn't have anything to do with actual gender and sex policies it's all to do with you know patriarchy yeah so yeah it's just a it's an interesting thing the way the way it has been taken over time and the way she is categorized as this like explicitly evil woman and i didn't really intend to <laughs> cover the first two conversations in this whole month of women being like clytemnestra <laughs> and medea but you know, I think they're such good examples of, yes, they did horrifying things. We absolutely do not condone murder. But at the same time, you know, there's a reason why the women felt like they had to do these things in this ancient world. Yeah, no, completely. And also the fact that there's also a lot of men in myth who have done I would argue, probably worse things than Medea, Clytemnestra, basically any woman who is now considered to be like an evil, you know, evil, awful bitch, like from myth. You have heroes, like specific heroes, capital H, who have done so much worse. Like Achilles. He was a bastard. Like Jesus Christ, Theseus, like serial killer. (laughs) Like, come on. Serial killer. (laughs) Heracles killed his entire family. Yeah. Yeah.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When, yes. those, when those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> You're here. You're here already. No. Uh, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this. That's day. The that's we didn't the problem. realize it until we uh, oh. started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. We were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how oh. lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Yeah, how much do we talk about the fact that Heracles killed his whole family, his wife and two children? I feel like the few times that's ever mentioned, it's like a footnote. In It's like, yeah, the 12 labors of Heracles. I mean, sort of killed his family. But let's talk about the 12 labors of Heracles. It's like, <laughs> hang on, you just skipped over, like, mass murder. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis is always that it was because of Hera. You know, yeah. Hera made him kill his family. Yeah, which, and again, if we're really going to go down the route of, like, gods and goddesses making people do things, I mean, the gods aren't innocent in Medea's narrative, because Mm -hmm. arguably she would never have fallen in love with Jason without the gods' interference. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I think she's smarter than that. Yeah, she has better taste. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Ovid, Ovid tells her story in Metamorphoses, which is beautiful and just mostly about her dragon chariot but also um in heroides which i've sort of caught up on a couple of pages of and 
for one, it's just so beautifully done. And the Herodes are something I haven't covered a lot in the podcast, but they are letters written by women to heroes who have, you know, wronged them in some way. Um, and so Hypsipyle has one to Jason too, which is interesting. Uh, but Medea's, it's so very much about like, why did he come there in the first place? How, why did that have to happen? You know? So it's, she says like, why was a ship made from Pelion's wood road so quickly? Hmm. And why did I take too much pleasure in your golden hair, your fine ways and the lies that fell so gracefully from your tongue? Oh, like it's just, I mean, it's so beautiful. It's Ovid, but it, it's so interesting and very much, and granted that's just kind of the point of the Herodes, but it's very much like Jason is awful. And <laughs> you know, what, how did I get myself into this? And you know, why did you come here ever in the first place? And what my life would have been if you'd never come here at all. Yeah. That's a really good way of looking at it. Actually. It's like, what would she have been like if none of that had ever happened to her? Like if she'd just been allowed mm-hmm. to live her like, lovely witchy life on Colchis just just being fine like what would have happened yeah well the so the first four lines of the poem are and I remember that I queen of Colchis found time when you came begging for help indeed those sisters who spin the threads of life should have unwound at my last spindle Hmm. so she's basically saying like I wish the fates could take it back or had stopped it before you'd even come and and this any of this had started it's very like kind of explicit of like oh what would i have been (laughs) if it weren't for jason yeah oh that's sad oh medea (laughs) i mean yeah she was a she i mean this is queen i mean queen or princess whatever she was royalty on colchis she was the daughter of essentially a god if not explicitly a god a deity Mm. you know she was she was godly she was royalty she was powerful and super magical like you know that in a in ancient greek myths she would have never had a chance to to (laughs) do anything incredible because women don't get that chance really but you know if if you're gonna theorize about it the possibilities were endless they really were and i feel like so many of the things that gave her possibilities like the fact that she was you know princess of colchis and the fact that she has these really fucking cool magical abilities i feel like so many of those things are also kind of the architects of her downfall because Mm -hmm. those are things which really differentiate her a from like I mean there's no other way to put it but I guess like normal expected typical Greek women in myth anyway not like you know in general but and they're also things which I think kind of alienate her from like the role of a woman in myth does that make sense Mm -hmm. like many of the ways in which she's different a kind of they make her more powerful but they also in tandem make her less powerful yeah it's like she's she's not quite a mortal and she's not quite a god and so while in theory that grants her more power than a mortal but the fact that she's in between both mm. just sort of ends up serving to bring her down in a so a sort of unexpected way and and the fact that she is magical as much as it is power too like you're saying it sets her apart and it also 
you know, it, yeah, it, I mean, it just makes her, I guess, different in a way that she then, it's hard to phrase, becomes more problematic, mm. I suppose. I mean, certainly she uses her magic for bad with, because of Jason, but I think there are versions too, where, you know, she, I'm trying to remember where I read it, but essentially where like her father, Aetes, is like torturing people on Colchis all the time and she wants him to stop. And that's almost mm. why she helps Jason is she's trying to stop her father and Jason is there to steal something from her father and therefore hurt him. So she's going to help him. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting way because it really starts her off on a good foot as like someone who's trying to do good. And then in an attempt to do good, she helps like the absolute wrong man. And then her life goes downhill, you know? Yeah, and I think that's a good point in the fact that because she does exist in this kind of like liminal space between like deity and mortal and also like woman and not quite woman purely because she doesn't perform the expected gender roles of like what would Mm -hmm. kind of constitute like a mythical ancient Greek woman. She has all this power, but she doesn't have the the narrative role that enables her to take agency of that power. Like her power has to be in service to someone else. And unfortunately it ends up in the service of like grade A fuck boy, complete wet towel, Jason. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. And also wet towel, Jason is an <laughs> outstanding way to describe him. I mean, he, she's got the personality of like a used dishcloth. I really just he- hate him. <laughs> He absolutely does. He really doesn't have any kind of personality at all. He's just sort of like generic man in the worst way imaginable. Yeah, I I just hate him. Like when I was a kid, (laughs) I used to love the Jason the Argonauts film. Like I loved it. I would watch it like every week, but I haven't watched it in quite a long time now. And part of it is because I'm like, no, hang on. This guy's awful. I don't want to watch a version in which he gets to do stuff. (laughs) I still haven't seen it and I I really need to. I've been meaning to watch it and like live tweet hate it. Mm. I do recommend watching it because it genuinely has like an interesting take on Medea and mm. I think it has like it has good points and bad points. Like it it's good in that for a piece of classical reception, you know, like meaning a modern work that takes the classics as its basis. It's quite good in that it doesn't completely diminish her role within the narrative like it it doesn't reduce her to like ooh, sexy spicy lady who is on along (laughs) for the ride like it doesn't do that she does have an active role well that's good it is but i think it definitely falls into the pitfall that um a lot of other works of reception do which is they have a female character so by god she better be sexy and like you have all these scenes of her. I mean, I think the first time you, you see Medea and, and they actually it's a double edged sword in the film because also the fact that she is in the myth a non Greek barbarian woman. Mm. Um obviously nineteen sixties were not, you know, the most progressive years. Were they not? <laughs> you, know, you know, you know, not not the most. Um and there's definitely uh, a sometimes slightly uncomfortable kind of like exoticism or like fetishizing mm. of her exotic nature um which often manifests in like a some kind of like generically quote-unquote like ethnic music playing in the background and she's there covered in like gold paint but you know they, they did their best I think. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, that sounds like the 60s and or, you know, much more recent than that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that there's like, there's a whole other episode in, you know, modern takes on on women from Greek myth. But I, I do think that we've yet to see a version of Medea kind of either on screen or like in literature or really kind of anything that I feel does the narrative as much justice as it could. Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't, I mean, there's not a lot, obviously the play is performed a lot, but there's Mm. not a lot of otherwise, you know, pop culture reception of her. Like I can't really think of much. No, I, I genuinely can't like, if you were to ask me for like any kind of modern adaptation of Medea, I would probably just end up saying like maybe a play in which a woman kills her children. Maybe that's like based on it somehow, non-explicitly, but probably takes some kind of artistic license with the original source. I don't know. I can't think of anything that would name itself as Medea. Mm-hmm. I realize there is, there was a 90s, I think it was like a mini series tv like straight to tv of jason and it starred his name is also jason (laughs) he was like a star from the 90s really generic man like deeply jason Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When those those legends get here, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. No, no. we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. Okay. That's we didn't the realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my god, you were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young, were kids, and, and so self-involved, egomaniacs, yeah. and <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them, and, right. and then right. you get into right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. There's just so much to say about her, but also it tends to be like a lot of repeating the same points, I think, of like Mm. just how misunderstood she's been in everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that every conversation about Medea, you kind of have to cover like, there's like three points you have to make. And the first point is the one we've made 8,000 times, murder bad. (gasps) (laughs) And then the second point is like, Medea not evil, like she had reasons. And then the third point, I think, is like, just consider for one second what you would do if you were in her position. Like, you had no home, you had two children, your husband was going around town, like, being photographed with this hot new wife. Like, <gasps> like what would you do? Especially when you, you don't hold any power in the world. The, the power you have is the power over your children, because mm. that, as a woman, is basically all they had they could have children and very little else belonged to women. So, I mean, it's like, it's horrific, but it also is just sort of the only, the only way she could exert any kind of power in the relationship and in her life was that her family was the only thing she had any kind of control over. Yeah. And I think that when you're talking about that, like, I wonder if part of the reason that nowadays Medea is kind of portrayed as like, you know, amoral, terrible, awful, evil, heinous bitch is because we don't have that kind of cultural context. So I wonder if we find it more difficult to kind of like contextualize what she does because her lived experience is, I mean, obviously not entirely different because I think that you'd be a complete idiot to say that women aren't still like primarily identified on a very kind of cis-normative, heteronormative viewpoint of like woman equals having children. But I think that there's slightly more opportunity, at least in a kind of modern context. Like I think it makes it more difficult to view Medea as like having no other choice. Yeah, exactly. Like at least we do have some abilities, you know, in our in the current world beyond. I mean, I, I am someone who will literally never have children and never even consider the idea of them. So I personally am incredibly grateful that I live in this world where I am allowed to do that and I can have a career and a life beyond relationship and children. Thank the gods. But that's the thing, you know, in order to fully understand her, you do have to put yourself in that position of, you know, an ancient world where women were property and didn't own anything themselves and didn't have any power or agency or abilities of their own. Everything they had lay in their ability to get married and have children. Yeah. And like run a perfect household and be the perfect wife and the perfect mother. And like I say, I do think that broadly speaking, society still places that pressure on 
women but i think that medea's crime in particular i mean obviously she commits more murders than just the infanticide yeah. like she she does <laughs> um but i i would say that she's largely kind of identified by the infanticide like if you were to ask mm-hmm. just the like somebody on the street like oh who did medea kill they would say her children and i think that that even though we find it difficult to empathize with her because we're like, oh, women have, you know, more opportunities. They aren't just baby making machines. We still view for, you know, a good reason, but we still view the murder of a child by particularly the mother as kind mm-hmm. of like the worst imaginable crime. Like there's nothing worse than somebody who chooses to bring a child into the world and then kills the child yeah you're quite right there yeah so it's like a a kind of weird sort of double-edged sword in that on one side we can't empathize with her because we're like oh well women aren't just mothers but on the other side we're like but she was a mother how could she do that (laughs) yeah and you're right the pressure on women to have children is still very much there it's certainly in no way gone it suggests the idea that it's worse for a woman to do it than for a man. Like certainly Jason wouldn't be so notorious if he had killed the children instead. I mean, just look at Heracles. That's exactly what he did. And yet we have a Disney hero riding Pegasus and looking adorable. And I love that movie. Don't get me wrong. But I also like to share gifts of that movie of him and Meg and say, hey, spoilers in the future, he's going to kill her her and their two children. So there you have it. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's it's certainly the fact that she's a woman who does that makes it so much harder for anyone to sort of see beyond that and into why she might have felt like that was her only option or what is it about her as a person that might have you know caused that kind of anything I mean just anything about her as a person I think people don't look into that at all it's all just Medea killed her children so she's a monster she's evil yeah yeah there's definitely no uh awareness that there's any reason that she would do that beyond her being the ultimate evil because ultimately she does commit what is kind of conceived as the ultimate crime and I don't know how much I spoke about um the idea of the whole kind of like monster theory type oh yeah thing. that um, was in our previous try so please <laughs> <laughs> tell the current <laughs> listeners <laughs> about the monster theory well it's it's a theory that you are supposed to kind of apply to like actual monsters so medusa is a very good example of it um but essentially monster theory is the idea that monsters are a cultural body so they represent things that the culture that constructs them is afraid of and it's a way of literally embodying a set of fears Um, So again, if you're going to take that back to Medusa, you could argue that Medusa is emblematic of the fear of kind of like the sexually transgressive woman, or you could make an argument that she uh, represents the fear of victim blaming or becoming a victim. Uh, And as I say, you're supposed to apply this really to an actual monster. Uh, But one of the definitions of what makes a monster is that they kind of exist between worlds and also between bodies so they're not easily categorized and Mm. 
I would probably argue that in a lot of ways, Medea is actually quite a a good example of someone that you could apply this theory to because she is somebody who exists between like the spheres of what's recognizable and known and the kind of scary magic world where things are kind of intangible and a bit dark and a bit spooky. And then the fact that she does then commit this you know, terrible crime, she kills her children. I think there's a lot of scope to kind of say that, okay, well, you could use her as an example to discuss the fear of motherhood or the fear of transgressing motherhood. Uh, mm. Do you know what? Does that make sense? Like, even though she's, yeah. she's not a monster, the, the deed that she does ultimately is monstrous. And I think that you can look at that in a context uh, and say, okay, not only is this uh, a morally complex woman who is committing a crime for myriad reasons, but she also stands for something a, within the narrative itself, and then B, within the culture that received that narrative. So obviously, you know, Euripides, if he's the original or oldest extant version of that myth, then what the people in his day and age would have thought upon hearing this version of her story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting and true. And I also think as much as she's not a physically monstrous person... Um, she would have been viewed as a sort of metaphorical monster, certainly. So I think it's not a stretch to apply that to her, even in that that sort of that context of yes, she you know she didn't have snakes for hair, but she also wasn't seen as particularly human because of what she did. When you're talking about Euripides being the oldest extant version of of her killing her children because obviously he's not the oldest version of her but of her killing her children certainly but my favorite thing to just imagine is what the audience would have experienced watching Medea and I think I mean there's so many things they would have experienced from the fact that she killed her children um to the way in which he portrayed it which I think it's always important to to bring up because it's incredible uh in that he would have used the machinery that they had available at the time on their stages and the machinery that was intended exclusively for the gods and the the use of it in Medea is the first time it was used for not a god because the intention would have been to portray the gods sort of almost floating over the stage or on a chariot over the stage because they were godly. It's the deus ex machina in Latin. And Medea, for Medea, it was used to show her gliding over the stage in her dragon chariot with the bodies of her children. And I mean, if you are sitting in the theater of Dionysus in Athens, you're at the Great Dionysia. It's a whole crazy, incredible festival with phallic imagery everywhere. <laughs> Penises everywhere. And you're watching this play and like you're expecting a tragedy, sure. But are you expecting this level of tragedy where, you know, a woman <laughs> provides a, a poisoned crown and cloak to a princess, melts her skin off. The father tries to save her. His skin gets melted off. And you think, OK, well, this must be the height of the tragedy of today. And then, no, <laughs> you keep going and the final scene is her appearing with a dragon drawn chariot over the top of the stage with her dead children. 
And then, you know, I mean, there's just so many things that would have been in that play that would have been absolutely shocking and disturbing. And certainly it was because it was, it did not win any awards. And I think it was, it was one of his earlier plays too, right? And like, it just would have, I mean, the level of shock that would have come also because the, the, at the first performance of it, it would have been all men watching. And so like the fear that would have been in those men watching this woman, like kill a king and then punish her husband by killing their male children like it's so many things in one and i yeah. i just would have want i want to see the, the the fear and discomfort in the audience's eyes yeah you can kind of see why it came I th- it came last right like i'm pretty sure it came like stone cold last i think so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly didn't win certainly didn't win. no which makes it interesting that it's one of the ones that has survived like to this day I mean I suppose there's an argument to be made that because obviously it was a fairly controversial piece maybe that added to its uh, survival but you know it's so interesting it definitely is and I think one of the things I'm, I'm pretty sure is accurate <laughs> before I say it of Euripides is that he was one of those artists who found all his fame in death um, you know, Bacchae, I I feel like I, I've learned this before and always forget that Bacchae was performed first after he'd already died. It was finished oh. and performed after his death, which is interesting because it's also one of his most famous. Um, but he, you know, so many of the plays that exist for us today that, you know, have made it through time are because he was put into school books, um, but after his death. And then the other ones that we have are just because some random collector kept his things in better working order than Aeschylus and Sophocles as collectors. And I mean, that's fascinating in itself. Like the reasons why we have these things and what we don't have is just like mind boggling to me all the time. And I think about it at least once a day. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, so I think, I think for him and the reason why Medea would have been so popular in addition to it being wildly controversial um, is just that he did find such such fame after he was already dead. And I think people learned to appreciate him after his death in a way that, that wasn't the case with, with at least the other two that we know well, Sophocles and Aeschylus, they were much more appreciated in their lifetimes. Yeah, that makes sense. They were kind of like the one direction of, you know, the (laughs) the Greek play world, whereas I suppose he was more like a Jeff Buckley. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Perfect example. A wealth of pop culture uh, knowledge. <laughs> but uh, yeah, is there anything else that uh, you want, any other points you want to make about Medea today? I can't, I don't know if, because I remember the last time we were recording this, you kind of brought up mm. the fact um, that I completely forgot about, which was that after the narrative ends, like the familiar narrative where she Ooh. kills the children, the fact that she then does another, another bad and... <laughs> And I was thinking about that, like I was reading a few um, a few sources about the fact that after, obviously, Medea has uh, committed infanticide, uh, her story does not end there. In fact, she goes on to attempt to kill somebody else. <laughs> Everyone's most hated asshole. So we applaud her for that one, honestly. We, like all, no, we all do. the best to you, Medea. I wish you'd <laughs> Well succeeded. tried. You attempted it. <laughs> I know. I really wish you'd done it. Yeah. But I, so Medea does move on to Athens and, and tries <laughs> to kill Theseus. She, well, one interesting thing that, because I think you're right, that part isn't mentioned a lot, but she meets Aegeus in the Euripides play. Aegeus just happens to wander on by and, and 
essentially like makes a deal with her right then and there that he will do whatever she needs. And so once she has killed her children and the royal family of Corinth, she has to leave Corinth, weirdly. You know, she has to seek purification in another city. That's the way it worked when you killed someone, in at least in myth. Um, and so she just goes to Athens. And not only does Aegeus purify her of these sins, but he marries her. And, and then when Theseus arrives after his serial killing spree <laughs> on the road from treason to to Athens he well I mean he makes her angry I guess but also I don't blame her he's an absolute piece of shit so Medea probably just took one look at him and was like I know you don't deserve anything in this world and you know you're a threat to me and also you're a piece of human garbage <laughs> And so she does try to kill Theseus. Unfortunately, she fails. Theseus doesn't kill her or anything. She just fails. And then she's like, ah, fuck it. Like, I'm done with Greece. I'm super (laughs) over it. And that's when she just heads back to Colchis to whatever life she has there. I mean, enough time has passed that maybe, maybe her father's died or something and she's allowed to go back. We don't know anything more about her after that. But I do love that she tries to kill Theseus. Yeah. I I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, honestly, I would love to. <laughs> it's too bad Ariadne didn't have the thought too. Oh, I know. I mean, I wish that everyone who ever encountered him did. Like, at least one of them had yeah. a chance, right? Right? No, I, I read a thingy. Um, I can't remember what the source was. I want to say it was a Roman dude, which I know mm. does not narrow it down. But like, <laughs> some, some guy, some guy, uh, he wrote down that... The reason that Medea attempted to kill Theseus was because she was concerned that the return of Theseus would uh, impact on her own children's, like, inheriting the Right, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and, because uh, she just... had children with Aegeus at that time. Yeah, yeah. And I just found that kind of, like, fascinating, because obviously the murder that she is most famous for is killing her children. But then mm-hmm. after that, she kind of does like a complete 180 in a way and she attempts to commit murder again like to benefit her children but it's it's not the children that she victimizes does that make sense well it does and i think that it it indicates that it, it wasn't about her being evil and wanting to kill her children just to kill her children yeah. which of course we we know and defend it all the time and this whole episode is de- in defense of that but it it indicates it it indicates it in a, in a classical source that she this was not about her being evil and murderous just for the sake of it it there was a purpose and now that she has children that she knows can survive their situation because she has married Aegeus this king like she once again worries about their survival in their current situation but recognizes that there's a solution an outside solution and and that is simply killing Theseus <laughs> which I mean w- what if Medea's children had been those mythological founders of Athens instead oh, of Theseus yeah what a I mean, world we a might have better place god yeah they treat their stray cats better that's for sure <laughs> but yeah no I, I just find it fascinating like I've said before but just the fact that I mean, as you say, I think it contextualizes the earlier murder in a really interesting way. I think it it adds credence to the theory that she is doing it at least in part on behalf of her children. Like she is ultimately 
viewed in certainly in a modern sense and one presumes probably in an ancient sense as like the mother who transgresses in the ultimate way she kills her children she is indefensible but then you look at her I mean a her her track record like the fact that all the people that she kills she ultimately does so to benefit the people that she loves again Mm -hmm. not justifying just 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 contextualizing uh, and and I think it kind of casts her her character in a in more nuanced light, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think that's true. I also think probably that source is Plutarch. It could be. I was trying to yeah. look it up, but um, I completely forgot. So no, you know, let's let's fair. say it's Plutarch because he he wrote things. I, well, <laughs> he wrote the Life of Theseus, which there's a lot in uh, there, okay. for good or bad. There, it's a lengthy work <laughs> yeah not um, one that i will be reading because i don't want to no. read that much about theseus to be honest <laughs> i've read good chunks of it for when i redid his story recently which was actually so much fun because he's so awful <laughs> that i i told it in like four parts and and he's just such a little dick that it it made for some really entertaining podcasting mm. but that would be the only reason i i <laughs> would have read Plutarch's Life of Theseus. Ugh, disgusting. Good guys. Ah, Theseus and Jason, everyone's favorite. Yeah, like, I genuinely would be so interested in if they ever did, like, a kind of modern sitcom about, like, Jason and Theseus (laughs) are, like, these really bro-y, like, flatmates, and they're just, like, the absolute fucking worst. (laughs) Yep, and then Ariadne and Medea are sort of the reluctant, like, next-door neighbor (laughs) flatmates. Who are just kind of watching them with utter disdain and maybe Dionysus comes and they have like a a thruple between them and just continue their lives whilst laughing at the broy neighbors. Um hi, <laughs> Hollywood. We we are available. <laughs> we have an incredible idea. <laughs> Give us a call. I'm free weekends. <laughs> Well, I feel like that that might be the absolute perfect way to end this episode on Medea with the world's best uh, television show idea. (laughs) (laughs) So once again, thank you so much for talking with me, Anwen. This is always so much fun. Thanks for having me. It's been a riot. (laughs) I'm very glad. Again, for the second time now between us. Um, Well, third time chatting, second time about Medea. Yeah. We had some... (laughs) Even better points this time, so everyone's getting a better episode than they would have if we hadn't fucked up the first one. Yeah, it's like the fates intervened and they were like, your brains were too mushy last time. Be clearer. Exactly. They were so mushy. So, as everyone should know by now, uh, you do have a novel about Medusa. So once again, would you plug your novella, I should say, about Medusa? I'm very bad at plugging. Um, I'm like a broken bathroom, but <laughs> So am I. <laughs> <laughs> it is called uh, Here the World Entire. Uh, it is a novella retelling the myth of Medusa from her point of view. Um, it is very short, so you can read it in a very short space of time, if you have a short attention span like me. And some people have described it as okay and not bad. <laughs> I really liked it, I'll say. I have read it and I really quite enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, I think it was a wonderful way to retell Medusa's story and I highly recommend it to everyone. Also, like you said, it was short. And I lately am so busy reading everything for the podcast all the time 
that I rarely am able to sit down and read things for the joy of it, but it was short enough that I could sit down in one sitting and read it and thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a cohesive narrative. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and so everyone can find you on on Twitter at Kayatic. Kayatic, <laughs> yeah, which is a name that I, I do regret choosing. but uh, it's No, I love it. <laughs> well, it's based on my horribly misspelt middle name, which is Kaya. Um, so K-Y-A-T-I-C is my Twitter handle. It's, it's a play on chaotic, and I've always quite enjoyed it. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> I'm just here to support you. I was going to say, this is just this is lovely. I'm being complimented left, <laughs> right, and center. <laughs> but I do highly recommend everyone follow you on Twitter because that's certainly how we got to this point where we can just uh, have two full conversations about Medea <laughs> in addition to our very wonderful conversation about Medusa earlier. So, yeah, highly recommend that. And then remind us of your Tumblr about mythology. Oh, yeah. So, I have a Tumblr blog where I swear about myth a lot and retell mythology, and it's mythologymondays.tumblr.com. Perfect. Everyone can find you everywhere. And thank you again so much for doing this. It's always so much fun. Thanks for having me <laughs> again. <laughs> Oh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. Like I said at the top, it's just such a thrill that I get to do this. I can't even express to you all the cool things I've gotten to learn from talking to all these people and all the people I will get to talk to and learn from going forward. If you like this episode and the podcast, you know, consider a rating and review. Have you pre-ordered my book yet? If not, what are you waiting for? It keeps getting delayed by a week, so you have more time. Head to mythsbaby.com book to find pre-order links, or straight up just Google Greek mythology book with Liv Albert and you're going to find it. Next week, the remainder of the Phoenician women by Euripides, and another exciting conversation episode. Thank you all so much. You're the best. This is very cool. I am Liv and I love this shit. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen.
We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Yes. When those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> you're here. You're here already. No. Uh, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we the didn't problem. realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how oh. lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.